Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. And this is a weekly podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. And Jeremy is back this week. And I am back. (laughs) So Whether you love me or not. (laughs) It's great to be back, and I'm looking forward to it. Getting uh, record. I I appreciate Ryan and Jared, my sister and brother-in-law, stepping in for Jeremy while he was gone last week, but it's it's nice to have you back in in more ways than one. The podcast is nice, but uh <laughs> chores. She's chores. talking about chores. Chores. <laughs> and raising her little minion. Toddler gremlin. Yes. yes. So this week's presidential trivia is actually more like first lady trivia. <laughs> So this year marks like 100 years since women have been able to vote Mm -hmm. across the United States. Today, actually. Yeah. So, like the day that we're recording this. Yeah. And so the question is, which first lady was the first first lady able to vote for her husband in an election? First first lady. So she was already... The first lady. So you gave it away. No, maybe not. Who's able to vote for her husband? It could have... St- so she did be end up becoming a first lady. I'm making it confusing. <laughs> so what woman voted for her husband and became first lady? Yes. <laughs> Which was the first woman? Which was the first... It would still be the first first lady to vote for her husband. Yeah. Uh... I mean, this Anyways. is confusing now. <laughs> Do you have any I don't. Guesses? I don't have any guesses. Okay. Have any okay. Guess. okay. Well, <laughs> I hope that wasn't super confusing to everybody. <laughs> the answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. <laughs> Even though, like, with quarantine and everything. You know, you're like, oh, we can, like, watch new shows. We've definitely been re-watching shows that we've already watched before. Mostly because I hate, like, the time it takes to find out if a new show is a good show or a bad show. Yeah, so we just go to the 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 classics classics. that we know work. Yep. Yeah, so we just finished Hell on Wheels. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the setup I'm going to give you is very Hell on Wheels-ish. Transcontinental Railroad-ish? Yeah. So if you just, like... Keep that in your mind. It kind of just sets the scene. Post-Civil War. Post-Civil War. So, yeah. So, if anybody hasn't seen Hell on Wheels, it was a show on AMC about building the Transcontinental Railroad, and it was very dramatic. There's a a lot of deaths, a lot of... Yeah, they... uh, It kind of goes over the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific's battle to, to complete the Transcontinental Railroad. Right. So, getting into our story, in the 1800s, railroad companies were in constant competition with each other on who would lay tracks to certain regions the fastest with the ultimate goal of connecting the East Coast with the West Coast. Mm -hmm. This rapid expansion of the nation's railroad system meant that the railroad companies were in constant need of supplies, such as steel for the rails and coal for the engines. So when coal and iron ore deposits were found in Colorado and Wyoming, 
Plans were quickly made to mine these resources so that the railroads could ship out steel and coal from the Rockies for the railroad tracks in the West instead of waiting on shipments from the Appalachians. Mm. You know, just do it where you're at and you're going to get your supplies a lot faster. Mm -hmm. In the 1850s, coal mining was a popular career in Colorado, with most men being able to mine coal out of the mountains using only a pick and shovel. (laughs) By the 1880s, miners began to drill holes and use dynamite to blast large rock out of the mountainsides. By the early 1900s, mining had turned into a high-level commercial operation in Colorado, and mining techniques included deep tunneling and tippling systems. Between 1870 and 1910, the non-native population in Colorado multiplied 20 times over, mostly due to the mining opportunities there. (laughs) Whenever a large amount of coal was found, a mine camp was usually quickly established that usually consisted of quickly erected shacks where the miners lived and a company-owned saloon and store filled with basic needs. (laughs) Kind of like when we're watching that show, we're like, there's always the saloon there. Yep. So these were actually almost always owned by the coal company the railroad company, whatever you were working for, whatever town you lived in, it was like a company-owned town. Yeah. And the company also owned the saloon, so they were getting all the money. And they could jack up prices for Bottle alcohol. Bottle whiskey. Yeah, same with the store. They could jack up prices. They could set the prices for bread and whatever. They knew they how much you made, and they were getting their money back. Right, exactly. These camps acted as small towns and were ran by the mining companies, with the mine superintendent often acting as a sort of mayor. There were curfews and company guards that were armed with machine guns and rifles loaded with soft-point bullets and were ordered to not allow anyone that seemed suspicious into the camp. When an inspector visiting a mining site in Starkville, Colorado, that had just lost 56 men to an explosion, he wrote about the town, saying, The residences or houses and living quarters of the miners smack of the direst poverty. Practically all of the residences are huddled in the shadow of the coal washers and the smoke of the coke ovens, making the surroundings smutty with coal dust and coke smoke. Not all of the houses are equipped with water, and practically none have sewerage. They depend for their water upon hydrants on the streets. The people reflect their surroundings. Slatternly dressed women and unkempt children throng the dirty streets and alleys of the camp. One is forced to the conclusion that these people must be very poorly paid, else they would not be content to live in this fashion. Mining has always been, and is still, a very dangerous job to have. Mining in Colorado was especially hazardous and had a fatality rate that was almost double the national average at the time. Wow. This could be blamed on... Is it because of the tunnels or the kind of crappy rocks that they were working in? Yeah, that was a big part of it. Um, The high fatality rate could be blamed on a couple of things, including the geological makeup of Colorado, Mm -hmm. which caused a lot of cave-ins. Right. Um, And also, the state only had three inspectors to check on the conditions of mines across Colorado, which meant that safety conditions really were not being enforced or upheld at all. A lot of corners cut. Yes. Between 1906 and 1910, there were seven explosions at mines in Colorado that killed a total of 272 miners. 
What made it even more dangerous was that miners were often paid by ton of coal mined and not by hour. Right. So this meant that time shoring up mine walls and ceilings was basically unpaid. Like, time making the mines Safety. more safe was unpaid time. So yeah. you didn't spend time doing that. Yeah. Everybody wanted was interested in getting paid. So. Right. And not every mine used the same definition of ton as weight either. Some mines used the standard 2,000 pounds that we all know today, while others used 2,200 pounds or 2,400 pounds. Just kind of was like, oh, well, here a ton is 2,400 pounds. They're counting for impurities. And And then it was also like a company-owned man that would be counting the weight. And so it was like very fishy. Many of the miners and their families were not content with their work and living conditions, but they really didn't have much of a voice. Many of the courts and political systems in Colorado... Are you going to talk about unions? Is that where we're headed with this? We're headed towards unions. Nice. I could sense it. I (laughs) sensed it. Sorry. Foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, bad working conditions? We're going towards unions. Many of the courts and political systems in Colorado were controlled by the owners of the mining companies. When elections happened, mine superintendents often voted on behalf of their employees to ensure the mine's best interests. They'd be like, oh, here, I've got, I already filled your ballot out for you. Mm -hmm. When miners tried to unionize, the mining companies would work quickly to shut the unions down. Many of the mining companies employed detectives and private security that would spy on unions and then run the union organizers out of town. An example of this was a letter that mine operators sent to each other in Colorado that said, all superintendents, look out for Jack Nelson, commonly known as the Big Swede. He has been working at Wooten, and he is an organizer for the United Mine Workers of America, or the UMW of A. Colorado Fuel and Iron was the largest coal company in the western United States at the time. It had been purchased by John D. Rockefeller in 1902, and in 1911, Rockefeller gave control of the company to his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr. At the company's height, it controlled around 72,000 acres of coal land. Wow. In the summer of 1913, the UMW began to organize the 11,000 miners working for Colorado Fuel and Iron Company into a union. In August, the miners' union sent out invitations to representatives of CFI so that they could all sit down and the union could discuss their grievances, including low pay, long hours, and corrupt management practices. However, the company refused to even meet with them. In September, 8,000 miners for CFI went on strike, saying that they wouldn't go back to work until their seven demands were met, which included recognition of the union as a bargaining agent on behalf of the miners, Compensation for digging coal at a ton rate based on 2,000 pounds, so like an actual ton. Enforcement of the 8-hour workday. The Colorado 8-hour workday for Underground Workers Act had actually been passed a year earlier, but it was not being enforced Mm -hmm. in any of the mines. Payment for dead work, such as laying track, timbering, shoring up mine walls. Weight checkmen elected by the workers. Right to use any store and to choose their boarding house and doctors. Instead of having to use the company-owned ones. Right. And strict enforcement of Colorado's laws and an end to company guard system. The miners on strike were kicked out of the company-owned town. So they built tent cities at the mouths of the canyons that led to the mines for the miners to live in and to block any strike breakers' traffic. 
The largest tent city was named the Ludlow Camp. CFI then hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency that was described as a group of Texas desperados and thugs. The detective agency would raid the tent cities and fire their guns, scaring the miners and their families. They would sometimes even fire bullets into random tents, which would kill and severely injure people. Wow. The agency then brought in an armored car with a mounted machine gun attached that they named the Death Special. They would use this car to drive around the perimeters of the camps and shoot into it. The strikers dug pits beneath their tents so they could hide when the agency would come through. That's often where they would just sleep. It was just like in pits in the ground. Jesus. The miners occasionally shot... Like how terrifying is that? Like you're you're just your employers like trying to murder you. And this isn't just even men. This is like men with their families. That like women and their small children are also hiding in like sleeping in these pits at night so they don't get shot. Right. And the kind of the crazy thing is there is not that I could find... Were like no numbers of how many people died during these Protests. raids. Yeah. Just nobody kept count. Like hmm. we know people died because yeah. people got shot and people also got severely injured, but no hard numbers yeah. of how many. Um, the miners occasionally shot back and were able to keep the agency like out of the actual camps themselves and just hmm. the perimeter. In November of 1913, Rockefeller called up the Colorado governor and asked him to supply National Guard soldiers in helping break up the strikers. Classic. <clears throat> I don't think this ever ends well. No. When, whenever <laughs> the National Guard gets called in. No, they always end up shooting a bunch of people. Yeah. The Rockefellers would pay for the wages of the soldiers in return. Like, hey, like we need your guys, but we'll, we'll pay for their wages, so don't worry about it. Huh. When the National Guard showed up, the strikers thought that they were on their side and greeted them with flags and cheers until the guardsmen showed up at night to beat the miners and arrested hundreds of them on site. Jeez. They're like, hey, like, <clears throat> our National Guard, our soldiers yeah. are here to protect us from, like, our evil, like, boss. Nope. Never mind, our boss. Which, that's, like, a huge issue I have is that Private institutions and private citizens shouldn't be able to pay for National Guardsmen to do and their bidding. they can't. Bidding. They can't. Nowadays, at least. Nowadays. Back in the 1910s, they could, apparently. Oh, sure, yeah. They're hired guns. Yeah. Despite all of this happening to them, the strike continued through winter and into the spring of 1914. Like, these people are... Dug in. Steadfast. On March 10th, 1914, a replacement worker for the striking miners was found dead on the railroad tracks near Forbes, Colorado. It was believed by the company that strikers had murdered him. In retaliation for the murder, National Guard Adjutant General... Is that how you say it? (laughs) By your face, I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, you you can just say words and... (laughs) Not like try and... Enunciate. Well, I'm just... Adjutant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just asking you how you say it. Adjutant, yes. Adjutant. Okay. Yeah. Uh, John Chase ordered the tent city near Forbes to be destroyed. While the whole tent city was at a funeral for two infants that had just died, the National Guard burned the tents to the ground. Hmm. In April of 1914, John D. Rockefeller Jr. testified before Congress on the strike and said it was a national issue whether workers shall be allowed to work under such conditions as they may choose. Yeah, 
Um, I think this is a big, he's like, basically, he's like, I think this is a big deal. Like, should we allow workers to, like, choose their working conditions? Basically saying that was baloney. Rockefeller went on to say that union organizers needed to be kept from being able to come in and interfere with employees who are thoroughly satisfied with their labor conditions. (laughs) When asked by the committee chairman if he would stand by these anti-union principles, even if it cost him all of his property and it killed all of his employees, Rockefeller simply replied, it's a great principle. (laughs) So he doesn't care. A few days after his testimony, some of the Greek families in the camp put together an Orthodox Easter celebration for everyone in the Ludlow tent colony. The next day on April 20th, four National Guard soldiers came to the camp with a machine gun saying that they were looking for a suspected criminal. It's hard to say which side shot first. Looking at the various accounts, both sides said the other shot first. Mm -hmm. Either way, shots were fired between the two groups, and it continued for the rest of the day. Some guardsmen told a union leader that he was invited to discuss a truce with their officer, but when he was away from the camp, he was shot to death. Yikes. When night came, the National Guard came down from the surrounding hills and began to set fire to the tents. They set fire to the two stores first, which were the largest buildings in the tent city, and then began to go from tent to tent, pouring oil on the tents and then setting them ablaze. When the miners and their families tried to flee the fires, they were shot at. The official count is a total of 13 people were killed by gunfire, but there are some accounts that say much higher. When a telephone linesman was walking through the carnage the next day, he lifted up an iron cot that was covering a pit in the infirmary tent and found the burned bodies of 11 children and two women. Three of those children belonged to a woman named Mary Petrucci, who later said, I came out of the hole. There was light and lots of smoke. I wandered among the ashes until a priest found me. I couldn't feel anything. I was cold. So this is like an infirmary, which is a hospital. Or, like, a clinic tent set up. And these women and children had obviously went to go hide in their hole, like they'd Mm. always done. Mm -hmm. And they ended up just being burned alive instead. Mm. News of what happened at Ludlow quickly spread across the country. The United Mine Workers in Denver issued a call to arms where they asked for others in the Union to gather together for defensive purposes, all arms and ammunition legally available. 300 armed strikers marched from the other surrounding tent cities to where Ludlow had once been. They cut telephone and telegraph wires and prepared themselves for a fight. Hmm. Railroad workers in Colorado refused to take any soldiers to Ludlow. They're like, oh, you're heading to Ludlow? No, we won't take you because we side with them. And in Colorado Springs, 300 union miners stopped working immediately and headed towards Ludlow carrying whatever guns they owned. Funerals were held in Trinidad, Colorado for the 26 that had died that night. After the funeral was over, men walked from the funeral to a nearby building that had rifles and ammunition stacked and ready for them. From there, they walked to nearby mines, killed mine guards, and exploded mine shafts. (laughs) They're like on a rampage Rampage. now. 82 National Guard soldiers that were on a train headed from Denver to Trinidad refused to get off. A newspaper reported that the men declared that they would not engage in the shooting of women and children. They hissed at the 350 men who did start and shouted imprecations at them. 
5,000 people showed up to the Colorado State Capitol and protested on the front lawn, asking that the National Guard officers involved to be tried for murder. The Denver Cigar Makers Union voted to send 500 of their own armed men to help with the miners, and the United Garment Workers Union in Denver announced that they would be sending 400 women to volunteer as nurses to help the wounded strikers. Hmm. This is all to, like, join the huge group of men that's now going around Colorado to all the mines and killing, like, company workers Mm -hmm. and blowing up mine shafts. There began to be protests all across the country, including in front of the Rockefeller office in New York City. When a minister began to speak as part of the protest, he was clubbed by police. The New York Times ran an editorial that said, Somebody blundered. With the deadliest weapons of civilization in the hands of savage-minded men, Hmm. there can be no telling to what lengths the war in Colorado will go unless it is quelled by force. The president should turn his attention from Mexico long enough to take stern measures in Colorado. These people just want lives that are like they just don't want not being like constantly bullied by the companies they work for. They want to be able to work in a job that is safe, that they're not like almost guaranteed to die in. (laughs) They want to be able to live wherever they want to live, shop wherever they want to shop. They literally just want. Very basic freedoms, and to be paid and to be paid a fair wage. Right, like they're not asking for anything ridiculous, especially by today's standards. Right, but back then it was like, oh, you're asking too much. I don't know. Like, I definitely feel like we have like this negative uh, connotation stigma surrounding unions. Like, I, I mean, even even like to tonight when when you talk about unions, I just kind of like. Like, my my predisposition is, like, ooh, union's bad. Like, you know, <clears throat> then I don't know why. I don't know why well, it is. Like, we just, like, learn about. You know what's funny is I was reading this, and they said unions, like, um, unions became the most popular in, like, the 1930s. Right. At about, you know, Depression era. Right. And then, actually, they hit an all-time low about 2012. Mm-hmm. Like, being popular with... Um, the American population. Right. So, and I don't know where it is now, but I'm guessing it's still pretty low. Yeah, really. I'd heard a statistic that it's about 6% right now. Yeah, which is insanely low for yeah. what it used to be. Yeah. It used to be almost everybody was It was in one in three. It used to be like one in three people. Right. And like now, I can think of like maybe one person in my list of like Facebook friends that might be union. Right. And it's like, I mean... Unions have made work better for us all. They've gotten better working conditions. They've gotten eight-hour work days. They've gotten better pay. They've gotten safer. Yeah, but well, I'm gonna, what I'm going to say is, like, I don't think all work that unions do is good. Right. I was about to get to that. But the reason, like, people don't like unions is because they feel like a lot of people can just... Slack off and skate by and skate by once you get into the union because then you can't get fired because you're a union man and kind of thing. And that's kind of why I think the connotation has gotten such a bad rap, especially. Well, most companies don't like, I mean, anybody who's most people who are business owners don't like unions. Right. (laughs) I mean, yeah, because it's your employees saying, hey, we want this. 
I mean, you I want to jack up your overhead costs, right? Which is not necessarily always a bad thing. Like <laughs> sometimes business owners aren't looking out for your best interest. No, it's always a bad thing. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So soon after the New York Times posted their editorial about, hey, President Woodrow Wilson, like, yeah, what are you look do? what's going in your own going on in your own country. He ordered federal troops to the area. Mm. When the strikers heard about federal troops showing up, they knew that there was no way that they were going to win that war. And they immediately laid down their arms after 10 days of going through and blowing up these mines. A total of 75 men comprised of miners, strike breakers, union officials, and mine guards had been killed over the 10-day battle. Hmm. Over 400 miners were arrested and charged for murder. However, only one was actually convicted. The rest were acquitted. Hmm. That miner's conviction was also later overturned by the Colorado Supreme Court because the state of Colorado had never declared martial law. And so the miners were always in their right to defend themselves. Mm. Like, the National Guard had no right to shoot anybody because there was no martial law. <laughs> 22 National Guardsmen, including 10 officers, were court-martialed for the events at Ludlow, and all 22 were acquitted. So literally nothing Nothing came happened. Out. Yeah. When Congress convened to discuss Ludlow and the events that followed, many senators brought up the need to check the martial power that was being wielded by private institutions. One senator said, I fear that unless society can in some manner reconcile these troubled conditions as between capital and labor, Mexico is not the only country that will be torn by internecine strife. Hmm. Rockefeller released a memorandum in June where he stated, There was no Ludlow massacre. The engagement started as a desperate fight for life by two small squads of militia against the entire tent colony, which attacked them with over 300 armed men. <laughs> the deaths in the infirmary were the result of an inadequate ventilation and overcrowding, not caused by the actions taken by the defenders of law and property, who are in no slightest way responsible for it. Boo. Right? <laughs> Okay, well, they wouldn't have to shoot back if you didn't even have National Guardsmen there with machine guns in their faces. Yeah. And they'd obviously been shot at before. And those people wouldn't have died if there wasn't fire. They, they wouldn't have had to move into these ten cities. Right. And they wouldn't have had to dig pits in their tents to hide from gunfire. Time from the armored car that you had driving around with machine guns on Yeah. It. The UMW ran out of money and called off the strike on December 10th, 1914, despite none of their demands being met. Stricter labor laws began to appear all across the country and support for unions began to rise. Rockefeller, seeing that his family and companies were losing public support, because they seemed really awful after all that, asked labor relations expert W.L. Mackenzie King to help him develop reforms for his mines and their surrounding towns, including paved roads, recreational facilities, getting worker representation of committees that dealt with working conditions, safety and health, and prohibiting the discrimination of workers that belong to unions. And that's the story of Ludlow Massacre. Hmm. My sources for this story were Blood Passion by Scott Martell, 
The richest American family hired terrorists to shoot machine guns at sleeping women and children by Megan Day. April 20th, 1914. The National Guard. Well, they started off with the agency, and I think Mm. that's what they're talking about. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I do listen to this part. Yeah. (laughs) Do listen to where you get your your My sources from. Yeah. Wikipedia.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, this one time I had a conversation with my dad up on the ranch. Yeah, no, that, that, that is never a reliable source. Uh, April 20th, 1914, Ludlow Massacre by Howard Zinn. And the Ludlow Massacre Still Matters by Ben Mock. Talking about coal mines. Yes. Remember that time that we lived in Wyoming? I do remember that time we lived in Wyoming. Man, did we see some coal mines. Uh, did you? Did you? I don't think I ever did oh, really? see any coal mines. Oh, really? No. <laughs> oh, well, boy, did I see some coal mines. <laughs> I wish I would have taken you with me. Me too. No, it was crazy. I just like, uh, God, Big Springs. Was, no. I can't remember the name of the town, but <clears throat> like literally just driving down this highway in between, uh... Cheyenne, and uh, it was this highway cut off that went up to this town, and there was this massive open pit mine, and it's crazy. You can see it from the highway, and just you see these giant shovels working, and those you know those those big the what do they call them the mine dump trucks or whatever right. that are like literally like sixty feet tall. They've got like a ladder you climb up into yeah. them. Saw those run in and stuff. It's crazy. But you do remember all the coal mine trains. I do remember the trains. Because we lived right next to the train tracks. Yeah. We lived, <laughs> we on, lived, we lived on the other side of the train tracks. And we would, when we would walk come for the bar, sometimes we would have to wait for the train to go by before we <laughs> were able to cross the train tracks to get home. Catch a piece of coal as it's falling off. <laughs> yeah, especially that was the worst, like right in the middle of winter. Yeah. We're freezing like our butts off. Negative 40 degrees and you're waiting for the train to go by. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, presidential trivia. Yes. First first lady to vote for her husband. Was Florence Harding, Ooh, the wife of Warren, Warren G. G. Harding. Harding. Yep, yep. Mm. The one who later murdered her husband. Maybe. Allegedly. Allegedly. If you don't know what we're talking about, check out Sex, Drugs, and Warren G. Harding. Yeah, that episode. So it's like episode like four? <laughs> oh no, it's later than that. 13? Uh, probably closer to 13, 15, something yeah. like that. Um, in 1920, Mary A. Livermore, chair of the Women's Republican Committee of New York, speculated that one half of the majority of Harding's vote was due to women's efforts. Because remember, everybody thought like he was really hot, and so yeah. I think a lot of women voted for him because of his like <laughs> good looks, really hot, bushy eyebrows. <laughs> But, and actually, that was just her opinion. In reality, less than 50% of eligible women had voted in the election. Um, So he didn't win because of women. I mean, it helped a little bit, but. Um, But yeah, and then Mrs. Harding was also very highly involved in, um, in all of Warren's political campaigns. She wanted power, and that's why in that episode we kind of speculated that's why she stayed with him through all of the affairs, is because... She wanted she was, power more than anything. Yep. 
But yeah, that is it. And if you like this podcast and this episode, we just ask that you share it with somebody that you know. That's just how we grow is just one referral at a time. Word of mouth. Yeah. Do you have any news before we head out? It's good to have you back on that It's good to be back. Love it. (laughs) Love it. So we hope you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America.